For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson with the latest readout video from our free Wednesday Wake Up newsletter to which you should subscribe to help you keep your balance amid all the metaphors we keep hearing about multiple climate tipping points. It doesn't even make rhetorical sense because for any given thing or system, there can logically only be one tipping point. Before it, you don't tip over. After it, you do. And it doesn't make scientific sense either, because in the wacky world of climate, these tipping points are everywhere and nowhere at the same time. You see headlines and articles saying things like, quote, humanity is moving dangerously close to irreversible tipping points that would drastically damage our ability to cope with disasters UN researchers have warned, end quote. But does the UN go on to warn of planetary destruction and runaway catastrophe? Uh, not this time. Instead, it mentions, quote, the withdrawal of home insurance from flood-hit areas and the drying up of the groundwater that is vital for ensuring food supplies, end quote. So, everything's a tipping point now, and a tipping point is something that up to about five minutes ago we called a potential problem, and even if it does happen, nothing actually tips over. Or rather, everything does, and nothing. As for irreversible tipping points, what would a reversible one be? A seesaw? Or a hee-haw? Now, here's a point beyond which things do get worse. Some dopey government raises the price of everything or turns down your furnace in order to fix the weather, and instead, you just feel pain. And in fact, as the real impact of climate policies felt in the real world, lots of people are objecting that it's hurting more than we were promised. A lot more. And many politicians who insisted that their schemes would make us all better off are now saying they need to hit pause because they're making too many people worse off. Even Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau chose the one-year anniversary of his MPs rejecting a Conservative motion to remove the carbon tax on home heating oil to announce that he was suspending the carbon tax on home heating oil for three years, at least in Atlantic Canada, where they really, really need votes. See, this carbon tax is an essential tool for saving the world from an urgent crisis. But then again, I see those sinking poll numbers down east and, well, a leader has to set priorities. As Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe chortled, quote, After years of telling us that most households are getting more money back from the carbon tax than they pay, Trudeau today announced a three-year pause of his carbon tax on home heating oil to make life more affordable, end quote. Gotcha. Of course, Trudeau could have admitted that making fuel more expensive on purpose would raise the cost of living and asked to trust him that it was worth it down the road. Instead, he fibbed and was caught and now looks both silly and unreliable. Meanwhile, over in Britain, the usual suspects are heckling Prime Minister Rishi Sunak for failing to cough up some £30 billion a year on net zero projects and then somehow convince private firms already reeling from high energy costs and failed alternative energy unicorns to up their spending by £10 billion a year or so. But Sunak doesn't seem impressed, preferring to heed ordinary people's vociferous complaints now that his Conservative Party is on the political ropes for all kinds of reasons, including the problem of expensive energy. And as a nagging news story concedes, the policies weren't working anyway. Quote, UK emissions are supposed to fall by 68% compared with 1990 levels by the end of the decade, but the Climate Change Committee said there remains a substantial policy gap in achieving this end quote. 
Plus, the whole thing was all pain for no gain anyway, because if the UK did cut its emissions, it wouldn't change global temperatures. Exactly as voters weren't promised. Deftly missing the point, The Guardian ran a piece on how, quote, families are eating less healthily and turning to ready meals and processed foods due to the cost of living crisis a study has found, end quote. But the piece failed to focus on the government deliberately raising energy prices as a critical component of this cost of living crisis, limiting itself instead to talking about, quote, research findings that many people are finding it more difficult to eat healthily as millions struggle with increased food prices and other high household bills, end quote. Oh, other high household bills. Any bills in particular? Well, the public knows, even if the floundering mainstream media don't. And now, a word from our sponsor. And yes, again, that's you. All the people out there who are already backing our work, and all the people who are subscribing. More than 84,000 of you on YouTube alone, where we've had almost 10 million views. But we need to keep up the momentum. And that's why I interrupt to pass the hat to those of you who aren't already backers and say please make a pledge, one time or monthly, $3, $5, $10, whatever you can afford so we can continue to push back against the climate cult and win this battle. And now, back to me. In the newsletter, we also noted that once it became fall, with characteristically large swings between warmth and cold, it became hard to keep track of what was weather and what was climate change. For instance, GB News told us that Britain, which had a cold, clammy summer in the hottest year ever, quote, braces for Arctic deep freeze as ongoing storms threaten to lash country, end quote. But it just described it as a volatile weather pattern, not as anything related to climate. Whereas, when a few places in Ontario set a record for high lows on October 27th, it was, quote, driven by climate change, end quote. But snow on the ground on October 30th was just, well, you know. And another thing, can nature be resilient after all? The Atlantic reports that fungi help trees even in the face of the dreaded climate change. But don't worry, doom looms as warming comes for the mycelium. Quote, in a world where one-third of tree species are at significant risk of extinction and where climate change is already disturbing the networks of fungi on which trees depend, understanding exactly how fungi shore up the system could show just how crucial fungal health is to our collective survival, end quote. Still, the science is settled, and that's the key thing. But climate change alarmism isn't just bad science. It also exhibits a variety of other red flags typical of undesirable political trends, including keeping very bad company. Not only did Greta Thunberg endorse Hamas after the worst single-day killing of Jews for being Jews since the Holocaust, the UN Secretary General, who seems to think his job description is a climate alarmist in chief, made such an offensive speech blaming Israel for the massacre that its government is demanding his resignation and refusing visas to UN personnel. On the other hand, speaking of sound science meeting sound economics, which it has done in Bjorn Lomberg's massive study profiled in our newsletters, Canary Media boasts of, quote, the trillion-dollar quest to make green steel, end quote. But... Unless steelmaking can plausibly be shown to be causing sufficient warming by itself to cause a trillion dollars worth of worse weather, it's actually money ill-spent even if it works, which is also a big if. 
Some 30 years ago, humorist Dave Barry observed that government, quote, is always looking for expensive new ways to appear ridiculous, end quote. And sure enough, the people responsible for sustaining insouciant extravagance in the office of Canada's Governor General managed to spend $8 million replacing a warehouse dubbed The Barn. Okay, they included solar panels. But if this is, as claimed, quote, the government of Canada's first zero-carbon building, end quote, in the nation's capital, at that price, maybe it should be the last as well. Now, as we noted, the backlash against climate policy is driven partly by the fact that we were told it would be incredibly easy to replace reliable, affordable fossil fuels with these renewables that supposedly have no downside. But instead, odd things keep happening, like an NHL game at the Climate Pledge Arena, which is its real name, and which boasts of being carbon neutral, where the lights wouldn't come on properly, and the teams had to play in a half-lit arena, switching ends periodically so the goalies could take turns seeing the puck. There's the phony green economy and corporate, in this case Amazon, virtue signaling all bundled into one lame farce. What's not to love? In this newsletter, we also note that something called The Eye, which is actually a British national newspaper with a desperately hip name, bellows that, quote, people would not die in storms like Babbitt if country was better prepared, climate scientist warns, end quote. Such is the state of climate science, or at least climate journalism, that young reporters apparently actually believe people never died in storms in Britain before there was a climate. Whereas Babbitt actually killed fully seven people. Now, if only this writer had Google on their computer, they could have discovered that Daniel Defoe's 1704 The Storm describes a week-long hurricane in November 1703. That's so long ago that it was December in the Gregorian calendar. And because Defoe didn't realize that it took climate change to bring doom, killed over 8,000 people out of a much smaller population. Also, if some kindly editor had explained to the writer what his search engine, they could have looked up St. Marcellus Flood in 1362 and discovered that it killed at least 25,000 people from the British Isles to Northern Germany. And that it was actually the second St. Marcellus Flood. I don't know, I'm getting a bad feeling about St. Marcellus, because the first one in 1219 killed maybe 36,000 people on the European continent. In the newsletter, we also noted that Inside Climate News told us that, quote, experts warn of denialism comeback ahead of November's global climate talks, end quote. Apparently, our sinister plot to take over the world has been exposed, because the piece perspires that, quote, even amid a disaster-filled summer marked by record heat, climate misinformation continues to spread online at alarming rates. Some experts fear it could slow progress at COP28, end quote. But, honestly, while we'd love to take credit for the impending failure of COP28, the delegates and their governments had that one wired well in advance. So in this case, the experts who say invented both the progress and the plot to stop it. In the newsletter, we also continue our ECS in the Real World series, with retired financial analyst Nick Lewis straying into the field of ECS estimation and fixing a few errors based on a lot of math training on his part, specifically in the impenetrable mysteries of Bayesian statistical modeling. In 2013, Lewis published a paper in a top climate science journal in which he reviewed the technique widely used in the field, updated the data, and fixed some problems with the math. And voila! Not only did the ECS estimate drop, but so did its uncertainty range. Previously, the data had apparently said that ECS was somewhere between 2.1 and a whopping 8.9 degrees Celsius, with the best estimate of 2.9 degrees. The revised estimates were, uh, somewhat lower. 
Lewis's new estimate came in between 1.2 and 2.2 degrees Celsius with a best estimate of 1.6 degrees Celsius, and it cut off that scary upper tail of possible values. So, if you're wondering why you didn't hear about it at the time, well, apparently journalists aren't very interested in scientific papers that throw cold water on the climate alarm. But, speaking of bad math, in 2015, the BBC ran a program called Climate Change by the Numbers, in which they picked three numbers that they thought were representative of the climate change crisis and handed them to three professors previously uninvolved with that topic and asked them to spend half an hour explaining what they meant. The numbers were the average warming since 1880, 0.85 degrees Celsius, the degree of certainty that at least half the warming since 1950 is man-made, 95%, and the cumulative amount of carbon that can be emitted if warming is to remain below dangerous levels, 1 trillion tons. Now, that supposed 95% certainty number was handed to Dr. Norman Fenton, a now-retired professor of risk at Queen Mary University and the author of over 350 peer-reviewed articles in probability and statistics. He spent his half-hour not discussing climate change, which he wasn't familiar with, but with how models are constructed for other kinds of analysis like football scores, which he happened to be working on at the time. At that point, he assumed that somebody somewhere had shown that scientists really were 95% certain, blah blah blah. But later, he found time to study it himself, and in a new report for the Global Warming Policy Foundation, he said he got it wrong. The IPCC made a mistake, and the 95% certainty claim is baseless. Wanna bet the BBC won't be asking him back? Finally, from the CO2Science.org archive, we present a study of climate on the northwest coast of the Iberian Peninsula that shows that, yes, there was a little ice age, as well as a Dark Ages cold period, and another cold period before the warm and warm period. So, there's that dratted natural climate variability again. Don't look for it in the newspapers, though. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I'm not tipping over anytime soon. Thank you.